Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back. This is New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. My guest, Dr. Monica Kim, wrote the new book, The Interrogation Rooms of the Korean War, The Untold History. Dr. Kim is an assistant professor of history at New York University. She was most recently a member of the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study, and her research was supported by a Fulbright Fellowship. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The interrogation rooms is a little different than other histories of this particular conflict. It's very people-centered. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and how you became interested in this part of the Korean War? We can start a a little further back in my life. As a second-generation Korean-American, I grew up knowing about the Korean War, but my parents didn't really speak about it. So in a sense, it was everywhere and also nowhere. Um, Back then, in the school history textbooks, the Korean War would barely get a mention. So by the time I decided that I really wanted to do a history of the Korean War when I was in graduate school, I was really determined to write a history of the war that was going to be what we could call more bottom up than top down. So rather than the kind of usual players of presidents and military generals, I really wanted to get at the experiences of of ordinary people in the wars. And then in terms of how I got to the interrogation room. It's uh, another story about my research where since I wanted to do a history about ordinary people's experiences, I decided to start with the inspector general files, which are investigations into soldiers' complaints, rather than starting necessarily with the, again, the usual documents that are more diplomatic and kind of more elite level um, politics. And as I was going through these boxes, I kept on taking copious notes on the content of different investigations, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, I started noticing the names of the interrogators that were noted at the bottom of each interrogation or investigation file. And I started realizing that they sounded more Japanese American than anything else. And then suddenly I realized that, number one, I had no idea (laughs) what languages were being used in the interrogation room. Um, Number two, I didn't even know how many people might even be involved in terms of translating, transcribing. And so that just really um, blew all of my assumptions out of the water. And later on, a senior archivist, Richard Boylan, who's now retired from the National Archives, he introduced me to this really incredible group of researchers who were Japanese-American elders 
scanning and creating an amazing digital archive of Japanese-American internment records. And included in that group were widows of the 442nd Regiment, which was the very highly decorated um, regiment, um, volunteer regiment of Japanese-Americans during World War II. And when I asked them about the names I was seeing, they said, oh, yes, of course, there Many Japanese-Americans served during the Korean War as translators or interrogators. And so it was through them that I then got introduced to, to other veteran organizations and through them that I got introduced to really terrific local history, um, oral history organizations also. And eventually I began doing interviews of former interrogators and that's, that's, how, that's how the story began in terms of why this is so people-centered. And you mentioned throughout the book some significant resources you found in the College Park archives. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the interesting finds that you uncovered during your research? There were a lot of interrogation files that I I was very much searching for and looking at more unexpected places. And because of that, I ended up spending a, a great deal of time at the National Archives. And at a certain point, um, one of the senior archivists asked me if I wanted to um, see a document that was in what they called the vault. And I said, of course, I would like to see this document. And um, the senior archivist, along with another senior archivist, took me down to what they called the vault. And uh, they opened it up for me and I walked in and they knew that as a historian, I would be very interested in many of the different objects that were contained in this vault, such as they showed me Jackie O's bloodstained Chanel suit, Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle, and then the FBI replica that they had made of that rifle, and then also Eva Braun's diary. But the reason why they had brought me there is because of a document that they did not know exactly how to archive because of its materials. And so this was a petition that was written by a group of anti-communist Korean POWs during the war. It was addressed to President Eisenhower, and it was a petition to ask Eisenhower and the U.S. military to recognize that they were being held as prisoners of war, even though they were actually South Korean army soldiers, because what was happening frequently during the war was that if the North Korean People's Army took South Korean army soldiers as POWs, and then the U.S. soldiers would then take the KPA soldiers as POWs because of language, because of uh, racial assumptions. Basically, all of them would then be funneled through the POW pipeline. So quite a few of these POWs were actually South Korean soldiers. Others were saying that their um, loyalties were now to the anti-communist South Korean Korean state, and they were pledging also their loyalty. The significance of why this petition was in the vault in the first place is that it was signed in blood by all of these POWs in, in order to demonstrate their loyalty. And for me, as a researcher, this 
again, it was kind of like that moment when I started realizing the Japanese American names that were that were showing up in the slot for the interrogators' names on these documents. For me, having blood on these documents also made me question, okay, so what does blood do to a document, right? And how am I even approaching reading these documents? And then again, just like with the interrogation room where I was thinking about, oh, I don't even know what goes on or what is involved in the process of creating this one document. Same thing for the for what I call a blood petition. Um, what, why, and and how, right? What were the politics involved in in using blood for this petition? So the book opens with a soldier from the KPA being captured and becoming a prisoner of war. And this one story really illustrates all the different parties that were involved in the Korean War and how Koreans had to be really savvy as to how they interacted with different parties that had different and sometimes competing interests. Can you tell us a little bit about your choice to use these stories of of individuals and some of these different players that were involved on the peninsula in the lead up to the police action? The Korean War, as historians call it, it was a very international war, certainly because of um, the presence of 16 different nations fighting under the aegis of the United Nations. But what I was very interested in for, um, especially in this question about interrogation, was how people on the ground were were navigating all of these different politics, different people in a bid to, to survive. And so for that very first story, I talk about Osehi. And Osehi is trying to go home after a stint with the Korean People's Army. And he's actually from South Korea. And what he has prepared are four different pieces of paper on four different parts of his body. And he has rehearsed which pieces of paper to show, depending on whether or not he runs into a South Korean soldier, a North Korean communist guerrilla fighter, someone from the United Nations, or somebody from the U.S. So just by the fact that he already had the savvy to anticipate all of these different kinds of political configurations on the ground showed me that, yes, okay, ordinary people are understanding and in fact deeply negotiating global geopolitics on the ground. And so with these, by looking and tracing um, the histories of both interrogators and POWs, it ended up being a story that begins not in 1950 with the 38th parallel in June 1950. It actually, I started in the 1940s, um, and I start that with tracing the experiences of somebody like Osehi in South Korea. So I start with the U.S. military occupation and looking at um, on the ground how people were creating a surveillance network on, on the ground and how 
ordinary Korean civilians were understanding this particular network. So that's already in place, obviously, before the outbreak of the war in 1950. And then also in terms of, for example, the U.S. interrogators, many of them were drafted or volunteered Japanese Americans who were serving as interrogators of Korean POWs during the war. So I begin um, their stories actually in the 1940s in the Japanese American internment camps. So by making this story much more people-centered, even the beginning of the story of the war has geographically and also temporarily shifted really dramatically in, in a way I had not anticipated. You mentioned that surveillance network. I want to ask you about the counterintelligence corps. Who were they and what was their role? So the counterintelligence corps becomes very key to the story about intelligence um, and interrogation, but especially more in terms of ultimately the story of kind of consolidating state power, especially in, in South Korea under the U.S. military. So the usual story about the U.S. military occupation of Korea is that it was more of a side story, an afterthought to the U.S. military occupation of Japan, which was where so much, including MacArthur physically, was located in Japan. And so when the U.S. military occupation officials arrive, and they arrive in early September, weeks after the actual liberation of Korea from Japan in August 15th, so there's also a lag time there. And they arrive, they have very few directives on how to conduct this military occupation. And they also arrive and realize that ever since liberation of August 15th, that different people's committees had already been organizing either redistribution of land, kind of taking charge of the harvest, and that there is already some kind of of network, a a social system that's in place on the ground. The CIC comes in here because um, with so little directives, the CIC then is the organization who claims to start following and really understanding who is a let's say, a trusted Korean or a not-to-be-trusted Korean. And this falls definitely within kind of Cold War anti-communist versus communist definitions, even though what's actually playing out on the Korean peninsula is not exactly that clear-cut within U.S.-defined anti-communist politics. So the the CIC becomes important in how they use uh, Korean youth groups. They establish agent networks. They condone and they do rely on certain kinds of violent tactics 
to not necessarily extract information, but certainly to drive the left underground in in Korea. And then on the flip side, by the time I end up talking about U.S. POWs, the CIC comes back into view because the CIC becomes the organization that is really in charge of kind of the debriefing or the interviews and interrogations of U.S. POWs returning from North Korean and Chinese POW camps. Because at that time, uh, there was a suspicion about which U.S. POWs somewhat similar, actually, with um, Korean civilians post-1945 about who was to be trusted and who was not to be trusted. So the CIC ends up being um, a very important both infrastructure and and an organization um, in this book. Looking at when the Korean War took place, you talk about in the book that it was the first major conflict following the 1949 Geneva Conventions. And what was the significance of these conventions and how did they impact the lives of the POWs? As I was doing more research, I realized that this issue around the POW, which had been such a controversy during the Korean War, in fact, uh, by the end of 1951 at Pamunjom at the armistice meetings, every agenda item except for POW repatriation had been resolved, even including discussions around the ceasefire line. So by 1952, when the U.S. comes in and puts this proposal for voluntary repatriation on the table, it causes this huge debate, both at the table and also just on the global media stage. China and North Korea say that, no, We're not going to consider voluntary repatriation because the Geneva Conventions actually call for mandatory repatriation. And then this goes on for 18 months. Um, This is the one issue that holds up the signing of the ceasefire. Once I realized that, I asked myself, okay, after 1945, you have an interesting seeming paradox at first. One is that you actually have the continuing escalation of state-sanctioned mass violence across the globe, even after 1945. On the other hand, you no longer have states declaring war officially. The vocabulary for, for war That's the thing that ends up proliferating occupation, police action, especially for the Korean War. And so I became interested in how, why, why did the figure of the POW then become such a flashpoint in this moment, post-1945, post the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, post um, the Geneva Conventions of 1945? And that's when... I began really paying attention to how the interrogation room then comes onto the stage where the U.S. then points to their repatriation screening rooms and says that POWs in our screening rooms are able to make a choice between where they go at at the end of the conflict. And so this idea that in an interrogation room or in front of 
being asked a question by military personnel that the Korean POW could actually exercise choice was very interesting for me because we often think about interrogation rooms as being very hidden, very cloistered away. But now in the Korean War, everybody was now saying, all the different states were now saying that the way they conducted interrogation was actually the most legitimate way to understand the actual desires and politics of the interrogated individual. And here it was primarily about the Korean, this uh, the Korean subject. Who knew, who could understand what the Korean person wanted. And this is where India comes in and becomes very involved, creates their own interrogation rooms, which are very much modeled after kind of non-alignment politics, where they say that the rooms that they create are very, are neutral within Cold War politics. And then you have North Korean and Chinese interrogation rooms where they are saying that they are helping U.S. POWs in terms of class backgrounds and also racial backgrounds, how to better their own lives and consciousness. So that's when I started realizing that there's a very important element about the Korean War happening here against this backdrop about humanitarian warfare, where you can't justify warfare um, anymore in terms of simply about territorial invasions, et cetera, et cetera, because the U.S. also had done rollback across the 30th parallel after the successful Incheon landing that MacArthur had conducted. So how do you legitimate the ongoing war that's at hand? Well, it's to be able to say that this is on behalf of an individual, an individual person, to liberate the individual. The repatriation issue in the Korean War, it's its really interesting the way that you lay it out, how it is different in a lot of ways from previous conflicts. You're talking about the, the liberation of the individual. I wanted to ask you about another player you discuss in the book, the Psychological Strategy Board, which President Truman created through executive directive. Could you tell us a little bit about that group? The PSB, the Psychological Strategy Board, is a very interesting player in in this story about the Cold War. Basically, Raymond Allen, who was the director of the PSB, really envisioned the mandate of the PSB as the organization within the national security state that was that was going to tell the story of the Cold War uh, for the American public. So they were the ones who, was, who were going to create an actual narrative of the Cold War so that Americans knew how to act, who was who, how to situate themselves on this new Cold War global landscape. So the PSB, their early project ends up being exactly this issue, the POW repatriation question. So they start up by executive order in April of 1951 by Truman. And then by August, the PSB is now looking at the POWs in the Korean War and saying, okay, if there's a way that we can make the POW 
basically essentially like an asylum seeking or a refugee figure, then they can be the ones who who choose which side to go to. Now, what that essentially does is that it it puts the onus, the recognition of sovereignty of either North Korea or South Korea on the individual. So if you had a North Korean POW essentially decide not to go to North Korea, it would end up legitimating the project of the U.S. military occupation in South Korea and basically having these POWs renounce uh, their, their own state. But on the flip side, what that ended up doing was rendering basically these POWs stateless. And that becomes something that the POWs themselves very hotly contend with. They, they do not want to be stateless because the Korean people and the POWs, they had been living under Japanese colonial rule. Liberation came on August 15th, 1945. And the kind of state that they wanted or with um, whichever state they identified with was a a real post-colonial kind of victory or, or, or revolution. That really was not something that the PSV anticipated. There was a, a real denial of what was going on in terms of the decolonizing world at that moment and, and not really understanding the, the dynamics that were already unfolding um, on the Korean Peninsula. The decolonizing is a good segue to the chapter where you talk about the role of Japanese Americans, just because of the history between uh, Japan and Korea. It's a really interesting chapter just on American reliance on Japanese Americans during the Korean War. Can you tell us about that? Yes, definitely. It's It was a surprise for me, uh, obviously, to, to see the names of Japanese Americans as interrogators on these documents I was looking through. And it turns out that in 1950, and even earlier, actually, um, there were other second-generation Nisei Japanese-Americans who were even serving under the U.S. military occupation of Korea. But at that time, because of long-standing Asian Exclusion Acts, starting from the Chinese Exclusion Act at um, the turn of the century, all these negotiations with Japan, with the Gentlemen's Agreement, Land Lease Acts, where Issei first-generation Japanese Americans could not lease land for their um, agricultural livelihoods. So there's all of this anti-Asian legislation that is happening. And by, by virtue of that also, there are hardly any <laughs> Koreans in the United States that the U.S. can um, recruit or, or draft in, in large numbers to serve as interrogators or translators during the war. So the U.S. military reasons that because Korea had been a colony for 30 plus years under Japanese imperial rule, that that many Koreans probably 
understood and could still speak Japanese. And so then they turned to um, the Japanese American community and population uh, in the United States, which had, as many of us know, had very recently themselves been behind barbed wire um, in internment concentration camps during World War II. And certain former interrogators whom I had interviewed, they did receive, um, some of them did receive training in Korean, but it certainly was not sufficient for them to necessarily become um, wholly, wholly fluent. So there would be an entire other kind of negotiation, which of course never appears in the interrogation documents themselves, but there would be a negotiation between the Japanese-American interrogator and, for example, someone like the um, Korean uh, POW who would often refuse to speak in Japanese um, because they would say, we have been liberated from Japan, so why should I speak that language with you? You mention a particular individual, Sam Miyamoto. Can you talk a little bit about his story and getting to talk with him? Yes, Sam Miyamoto, his his own life history really illustrates um, so strongly how we cannot think about one war as an isolated event from another war, that warfare itself is an ongoing project that is central to to basically state-making in in the 20th century. And Sam Miyamoto's story, he himself was uh, involved in a POW exchange when he was a child. So Sam Miyamoto, I believe that he was uh, around 12 years old when Pearl Harbor happened. And his parents, his father, like many Issei first-generation Japanese Americans in California, was um, cultivating basically niche crops that usually white American farmers considered to be more precarious uh, crops like strawberries, cucumbers. And so his father was a farmer, but he's he still remembered long afterwards that the FBI came for his father. They took his father away. They said that um, they didn't explain why. And they did not see him until they themselves were forcibly evacuated from California. And he ended up in the camp at Poston, Arizona. And at a certain point, his father um, was reunited with them. And what Sam really remembered um, very vividly was that his father's hair had turned completely white. Now, um, while this is all happening on sort of the diplomatic governmental level, what was unfolding is that Japan had had basically been going all the way down through Southeast Asia um, in in their expansionist uh, project. And in doing so, they had taken over 200 white Americans who were businessmen, journalists, missionaries, and they were holding them as, as internees. 
And this really raised a quandary for uh, the U.S. government and military because at that point, the U.S. military had no um, Japanese military personnel as POWs because they had not been in the war previously. So at a certain point, the State Department decides to turn to the concentration camps, the internment camps, where the Japanese-American internees were. And soon they either selected or requested for certain families to volunteer or were essentially pressured to to be part of a POW exchange. And so Sam, who was at that point um, maybe almost 14 or 13, he, his siblings, um, his mother and his father are put on the SS Gripsholm along with other Japanese-American internees, and they sail all the way to Goa. And at that point, Goa was a Portuguese colony and therefore was considered to be neutral territory. And that is where you had um, a one-to-one exchange, one Japanese-American exchange for one white or Caucasian-American. Then Sam Miyamoto and his family are taken over to Japan. Uh, we should note that um, Sam Miyamoto had never been to Japan before in his life. And they disembark at Yokohama and they go to his father's small village. Now, the reason why his father had left the village in the first place, because it was it was difficult for him to, to make a living there. But they go back. And because of the very tense wartime hardships in terms of food and survival, Sam and his older brother decide that they would leave the family so there would be two less mouths to feed and that they would go to Tokyo and fend for themselves and they would eventually reunite with the family. So he and his brother, they go to Tokyo. That's where Sam actually witnesses the horrendous Tokyo firebombing where he remembered um, seeing a, a woman actually drowned a, a baby in, in wa- water rather than to be burned along with everyone else during that night. Um, he somehow survives. Also, because his father, uh, his parents had not registered him in the village registry, even though he was ethnically Japanese, he was not recognized as a citizen subject of the Japanese empire. So he could not even attend um, any of the schools, and he also could not go to any of the hospitals. So ingeniously, Sam barters English lessons in exchange for um, lodging and food at a Catholic um, school in, in Tokyo. And this is how he survives that, um, that the, the war. At a certain point, he and his brother hear about what had happened at Hiroshima. They're so stunned at this news, that they actually do take a train and they go to Hiroshima. And that is another um, thing that is just absolutely seared into his memory. Um, Later on, he talks about how um, he himself does develop a a brain tumor and he attributes it to um, the exposure to the radiation at Hiroshima when he went to go see. Then what happens is... 
at a certain point, he does not feel that he really belongs in Japan and he really still wants to go to the United States. So he gets into UCLA and he goes to UCLA for college. And perhaps not so surprisingly, because of his background, he wants to study law. But at that time in the UC system, the only law school was actually at UC Berkeley. So he applies to transfer to UC Berkeley, but then there's this moment where he's not actually registered as a student in the system. And that is precisely the moment that he gets drafted to then be an interrogator in the Korean War on the Korean Peninsula. So he is then sent yet again to East Asia, where where he then has to uh, interrogate Korean POWs, and he has a very a very different understanding of of what that relationship could be. He taught me a lot about how to uh, frame this history and um, how how to pay attention. We had a, a few conversations back in 2007, and I'm very indebted to him for sharing his life history with me. Shifting gears, you talk a lot about Koje Island, which is a prison camp. And uh, in the book, you quote, I think a New York Times reporter says that the strangest episode of the Korean War happened there. Can you tell us about this prison camp and, and what took place? So the prison camp on Koje Island, which was essentially U.S. run, but also there were many ROKA, South Korean, Katusa augmented troops working alongside U.S. troops on in this camp. This camp was significant because it was, according to a Red Cross delegates, the largest POW camp ever run in accordance with the Geneva Conventions. There were over 170,000 POWs. And in fact, at the very beginning, when they were creating this camp, there was not enough, basically, troops on the ground from the U.S. military or from the South Korean military to build the camp. So the POWs themselves were primarily responsible for putting up their own barbed wire fences. Now, the event that you're referring to is something called what was called the the Dodd kidnapping, where a group of uh, Korean communist POWs reportedly kidnapped the U.S. military camp commander. And this absolutely caught media (laughs) headlines all over. And this is really the moment where, especially within U.S. media, the Korean communist POWs are are being called fanatics, right? And that they're being irrational and they're holding General, Brigadier General Dodd hostage. And there was this huge outrage that really spread across the media landscape. But what was so interesting about this Dodd kidnapping was that Dodd himself, even when he was interrogated after he was released by U.S. military interrogators, he said, there was nothing broken except for my fountain pen. (laughs) And that they had treated him with the utmost respect. 
And that's when I became very interested in, okay, this is maybe not the most ordinary kidnapping situation. What What is going on here? And another thing that kept on popping up in a lot of the U.S. Uh, news media articles was that they, they just couldn't understand why the Korean POWs had requested a thousand sheets of paper. So as I was delving into basically what multiple hundred page investigation file done by the U.S. military into this kidnapping case, I soon understood that actually the POWs, that they had they positioned themselves actually as political representatives of the other POWs in the camps. And they were protesting the, the interrogation screening for voluntary repatriation that was being conducted because the POWs themselves were saying that that kind of screening denies the sovereignty of of the North Korean state. So the POWs were actually being very savvy in how they were using their own POW status as a way to assert the legitimacy of the DPRK at that time. And also what was very interesting is that when they brought in Dodd behind the barbed wire fence into their compound. They had clearly already planned this. They had a sign written in English that was unfurled that said, we will not harm Dodd if any undue violent actions are not taken. We guarantee his safety. They, he had an, Dodd had an ulcer. They made sure that all of his meals were actually brought through the fence, especially for him. They had a particular room that was set aside for him where they had guards guarding uh, him at all times. And so in a sense, Dodd was being treated almost like, like a diplomat and they weren't challenging his position as camp commander. In fact, they needed him to remain the camp commander in order for them to be legitimate POWs and not stateless POWs because the way the Geneva Convention works is that you think you protect the vulnerable POW by treating them as extensions of the state, right? They are protected because they're still under the aegis and the semblance of a state. And there's so much more in the book about it, too, about how strategic a lot of those choices were. And I liked that you had a map in there also of, um, I'm guessing, probably from the investigation files, because you think, how did these POWs just get the, the camp commander and put them in their own their own compound? It's, it's pretty interesting. Basically, according to the POWs and also the investigation file, the POW, that particular compound, the leader had been requesting a meeting with Dodd. And so Dodd had come with one of his assistants and they were speaking through the barbed wire fence. And there were probably only about six or seven POWs at the at the fence also at that point. And they had to open up the, the fence between Dodd, his assistant, and the POWs in order to let a truckload of tents go through. And at that point, 
And it's this amazing piece of detail that comes through the archive. But Dodd had been actually whittling a piece of wood as he was talking with them. And he put that away. And one of the larger, heftier POWs, he supposedly pretended to yawn. And as he was pretending to yawn, he simply picked up Dodd and very quickly moved him inside of the barbed wire fence and the other POWs very quickly closed the fence behind him. So it it was, yeah, it was certainly a very, a very quick, <laughs> a, a quick event that no one, I guess, on the U.S. military side had necessarily anticipated. But they also were having a hard time <laughs> imagining what was going inside. And and in fact, uh, a lot of the journalists kept on mentioning that uh, soldiers were telling them that, oh, it's like a mini pamunzam in there. That's what I keep on hearing. It's like a mini pamunzam. And, and yeah, indeed, it was a kind of uh, political negotiation where the stakes of sovereignty and recognition uh, were, were indeed on the table. And in fact, those who were at Pamunjam at the armistice meetings, they were absolutely thinking about what was happening at, at the Kutte camp. And those at the Kutte camp, like this POW representative organization, they were absolutely aware um, and also trying to impact what was happening at the ceasefire armistice meetings. So we've talked a lot about POWs captured by the UN force, but you also have a chapter where you discuss what happened to US POWs and what they went through. Can you tell us a little bit about POW life above the 38th parallel? So when I began the research on US POW experiences in North Korean and Chinese POW camps, it was tricky because I I don't have access to North Korean military archives on this, but what I do have are this very extensive collection of archival documents that consists of U.S. military interrogations of U.S. POWs returning from North Korean and Chinese POW camps about their experiences in the camps. And this is over a thousand files. So I had gone through all of these files to get a sense. I mean, there's some really severe limitations in terms of um, what I can essentially get at, but there were absolute patterns that kept on coming out of, of these documents. And for the U.S. POWs, two things really came out. One was that we often think about brainwashing as the <laughs> as the experience or the cultural touchstone for much of the American public in thinking about the Korean War, especially when we think about US POWs, for example, the movie The Manchurian Candidate. And certainly for myself, that was really uh, the foreground of my mind as I was, as I was doing my research. What what do we do about um, how how was this developed? Um, what was brainwashing? Um, what is going on in these camps? And what 
actually became very evident as I went through these thousand plus files was that there's a difference between, number one, Chinese and North Korean interrogators. Chinese interrogators were much more interested in technical information, which made a lot of sense because at that point, Chinese military troops were very much on the ground and they were very invested in in getting the technical information from US POWs. But then there was a, a at least initially, there was a difference between Chinese and North Korean interrogators who were more interested in actually talking about, for example, the works of W.B. Du Bois, about Paul Robeson. Suddenly, in these uh, files, I was understanding that North Korean interrogators, number one, some of them had studied in the United States at university or had some extensive knowledge about also race and class situations in the U.S. Um, One other interrogator I had come across had actually worked for the U.S. military occupation and had become very um, disillusioned and had gone to North Korea before the outbreak of the war. And so you had these North Korean interrogators who were very, very familiar with American culture, with American society. And the U.S. POWs had not anticipated that at all. And in fact, you have U.S. POWs really recollecting being really surprised and that actually they were learning for the first time certain things about U.S. political government systems, for example. And the North Korean interrogators, they set up a kind of dynamic that was, how to say, a lot more horizontal. They they really wanted to open up a, a way to speak and be an ally and a comrade with soldiers of color and also soldiers from poor or working class backgrounds. So the soldiers on, on from the soldiers of color and also so, soldiers of poor working class backgrounds, they would encounter this in the interrogation room. And this is not every interrogation room, but the more ordinary interrogation rooms usually were conducted as such. And But then they would come back to their own compounds and they would encounter another kind of surveillance system that was being created by other U.S. POWs. And so another thing that I came across in these documents was that certain U.S. POWs had essentially recreated the KKK or other KKK-modeled white supremacist groups and organizations within the compounds, which they said was created in order to, to discipline and punish collaborators, right? So this is when I, I, I was realizing that this whole conversation about brainwashing actually completely covers up an entire history of how U.S. racial politics are are actually at the heart of the dynamics of North Korean and, and Chinese POW camps. And then you have a POW like Clarence Adams, who 
was a young black man from Memphis, Tennessee, who at the end of the war elects to not go to the U.S., but to go to China. Yeah, his story's pretty interesting. And you even reveal he comes back to the States at, at some point. So Clarence Adams, he, during his time in the North Korean and, and Chinese camps, he basically is realizing that he has the opportunity to get an education in China. He's, he's going to be able to go to college in China in a, in a way that he would not have that opportunity in Memphis, Tennessee. So at, so he goes to China, he attends college, he marries um, a Chinese woman, he starts a family there. And then basically, as the years go by, he sees the political tides basically start turning as the Cultural Revolution starts becoming uh, closer and closer. And he decides that it would be savvy for him to to return to to the U.S. And so he returns to the U.S. But again, this is where the CIC, the FBI, again, he goes through so much interrogation. He's interrogated on on his way to Hawaii. He's interrogated in Hawaii for for a month. Then when they land, I believe, in San Francisco, he's interrogated again. When he arrives in Memphis, Tennessee, he's hounded by calls from the KKK. He's also called in front of HUAC, the um, House of Un-American Activities Committee, to testify in front of them. So it's just constant interrogation even after the war has ended and even after he has returned to the U.S. And what's kind of startling is that he, because he is being branded as a commie, essentially, in in U.S. society at that point, it's very difficult for him to to have a, um, a steady job that won't be revoked at any point. So he starts with his family, a chop suey restaurant, and it eventually becomes a chain in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's basically, I believe, one of the first chop suey restaurants um, because he had worked actually as a chef in embassies in China. So he uses his chef skills again to survive very politically savvy in that way to find a way to make a livelihood for him and his family. And while he's serving food in his chop suey restaurants, there are Black Vietnam War veterans who who come in and they hear him and they see him and they say, oh, I think that I heard your voice on the loudspeaker on the battlefields of Vietnam because Clarence Adams during the Vietnam War, when it broke out, he was saying that, oh, I, I know what's happening. I know what's happening to the, the poor and the black soldiers. And he did make recordings that were then used in the Vietnam War telling black soldiers that the first thing that needs to be addressed is the racism at home before democracy abroad can be achieved. How did the Korean War mark a change in the types of wars the U.S. would fight going forward? Well, from the standpoint of the interrogation room, 
the Korean War marks a moment where the justification for warfare is is being fashioned through saying that we are fighting this war on behalf of an individual that essentially no one is declaring official war anymore, that you have wars of intervention, and that war now can only be justified as a way to prevent war. Um, So that you only have wars that are being conducted, let's say, on behalf of humanity and kind of a universal abstraction, or in terms of thinking about regime change and an individual subject on the ground, giving them a choice, right? Very similar to the repatriation interrogation rooms of the Korean War. So I really see the Korean War as, as a critical sort of fulcrum point in terms of how how warfare is is fashioned and and presented and then it had huge ramifications for how individuals on the ground then have to navigate and survive through that kind of warfare how do you present yourselves multiple times over to different states to different organizations to different kind of military personnel and also to civilian to other civilians also essentially even though often we think about war as an event um, in this book what we end up seeing is warfare really as a trans-pacific sort of structure about networks and that everybody understands that it's not just about the beginning and the end of warfare but it's a constant kind of vigilance about how suspicion and surveillance has has become so key to to nation state building, especially in the post forty five era. Well, Monica, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, would you tell us what you're working on now? Right now, I am working on a book that is about the U.S. and the two Koreas. And it's going to be focusing on on hunger. And I came upon this particular topic because in my first book, when I was looking at especially the CIC documents, I noticed that there was a lot of anxiety around rice harvest uprisings during the U.S. military occupation. And when the U.S. military was not actually able to fully address the question of hunger, which is basically the question about colonialism and whichever organization or state can claim to have solved the problem of hunger, you have absolute legitimacy in the post-colonial moment. So who's who's going to solve hunger um, on the Korean peninsula? So I'm looking at how the U.S. military, revolutionary groups, people on the ground are all starting to define hunger as a socio-political problem only they can solve. And essentially, I'm very interested in how people try to teach others how to be hungry. So what does capitalist hunger look like? What does proper socialist hunger look like? And then on the flip side, how are people on the ground already creating their own 
kinds of economies for surviving in terms of food, in terms of addressing hunger. And I think in this book, this is where women are going to figure very, very prominently in terms of this kind of story about uh, U.S. military occupation and the war. Sounds like an interesting project. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. I really enjoyed our conversation. The Interrogation Rooms of the Korean War, The Untold History by Dr. Monica Kim is available now from Princeton University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.